Hi, I'm Joe Feeks, editor of Poultry Health Today, and with me is Jessica Hockaday. She is a production veterinarian in Huntsville, Alabama. Thanks so much for joining us today, Thank Jessica. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Now, we're going to be talking about gizzards. We don't talk about gizzards too much on Poultry I Health know, Today. right? But apparently this is a, a big deal, though, because we're going to talk specifically about gizzard erosion. I mean, I know gizzards are part of the digestive system. When you start talking about erosion, that right. sounds pretty painful, pretty serious. Yes. Um, it definitely is. I mean, I, you know, we think of our friends, they're little birds. We don't have teeth, so that's what they have to do to break everything down is those gizzards. So we really want that to be able to take the feed, especially in a production situation, and get it to a point where they can have maximum um, efficiency in feed conversion, because that's you know, what, we, what we get paid for, kind of. Um, but there are many etiologies and many presentations of gizzard erosions that um, can be um, actually lead to more serious problematic issues and also uh, also feed conversion issues as well. Well, how could you tell that this is going on in the first place? Gizzard erosions are actually first even um, discussed in the literature in about the 1930s um, for nutritional trials. Um, us as veterinarians, you know, always get behind the nutritionists. Um, and it was kind of coined where it was all kind of on the mucosal surface um, between the gizzard and the proventriculus. So if you think about that proventriculus kind of making a lot of acid, just like our stomachs do, and then going lo lower down into that gizzard, that change in the mucosa is kind of where you'll see a lot of the what we call conventional gizzard erosions. Um, however, after you know kind of diving into it. Um, People are calling many different, many different presentations gizzard erosion. So that to me was very interesting. Um, we also have you know, meaning it's, erosion. it's something else. They think it's gizzard erosion, well, but it's actually something else. It's just else? kind of a coined term that people will say, oh, that coiling doesn't look right, or, or there's an ulceration there, and oh yeah, that's a gizzard erosion. So um, you know, I think we just kind of this was kind of interesting to me to see if we're even on the same page when we're saying gizzard erosions because you'll see one person and they say, oh, that's a gizzard erosion, and someone else will say, oh, no, that's coiling erosion, or that's you know. Um, a feet issue or a stick poked through that coilin or whatever and so I found it really interesting to see like what is like let's get on the same page here like what does that look like so proper identification right right is, is paramount yes for sure and and this has to start in the processing plant I would think so even at the chick stage um, you can see that so some of the etiologies that are actually leading to gizzard erosions have been linked back to viral etiologies from the parent flocks um, even the nutrition, nutritional aspects from the parent flocks, and then in the hatchery itself, they've actually linked it to um, some of the like formaldehyde and stuff that they use for disinfection in the um, in the hatcheries as well. So even at that vulnerable young age, is really where we started to see like, these erosions. So what should you be looking for in live production? That way you could so, look at the flock and say, right. we think we've got a gizzard erosion problem Right, and here. that's kind of the problem, right? So at this point, we really don't know what the problem is. We can visualize it, we can see it. Is it doing anything? Well, being out in the field for the last few years as a resident, you know, I ask people about what they think about it, and they're like, oh, we never changed that diet. We've never done anything to address the gizzard erosion. And um, I think that it's very interesting just because um, the changes in management that were being required to, you know, no antibiotics or organic, um, pasture-raised animals as well, um, that these seemingly like inert problems could potentially be leading to more issues that we're not really aware of. So I think that kind of makes it a little interesting, but I don't think you can walk through a flock and say, oh yes, they have gizzard erosions, let's tend to this by any means. What about feed? Uh, I would think that because, you know, the feed is obviously passing through the gut mm -hmm. of the animal, um, is, is feed a, a problem or a solution? So, give me both. 
for sure. Um, so not only how feed is, so there's many different kinds of feeds that we feed, um, you know, from pellet feeds to mash and crumble, um, all of them actually have kind of their own uh, positives and negatives on the gizzard. So the, um, and, and also some of the feed additives as well. Um, more, more like the grains and things of that sort that kind of can sit in that gizzard for an extended period of time if you don't have appropriate gizzard tone. So, um, you know, when you think about it, a crumble should be a lot easier to digest in your gizzard, potentially if you had one, <laughs> um, as opposed to like a harder um, pellet. So the pelleted birds will actually have a much um, more defined gizzard uh, musculature as well. So that feed is more efficiently pushed out into the duodenum for absorption. Whereas some of the other like crumb, crumble and um, mash can also can kind of sit in that um, what we call like the caudal blind sac of the gizzard and cause kind of severe erosions or um, sloughing of that coilant layer as well. well. What about specific feed ingredients? Could they bring on this problem? So there are some um, grains um, that have been associated with it, mostly because if they're feeding um, a mixed feed, we don't really do that anymore, where you know everything is pretty homogeneous when we're feeding. Um, but you can also see increases in mostly like because it has also been associated with like mycotoxins as well so potentially grains that have been um, poorly treated or you know harvested during um, a wet period then you can also see at, at that time as well what about feed medications any connection um, there there have been some with regards to um, using like pelleted forms of pretty much any kind of um, feed additive because just because when you think about it like it's definitely sitting there longer um, but also birds you know historically and in the wild use those um, the grit and such to break things down further in the gizzard um, but uh, honestly with my research that I've done I really haven't pinpointed exactly like where we would go with that. Are there certain types of production systems or even facilities that might favor gizzard erosion? Actually, the, so the research that I did um, was with a company that actually has some NAE birds and they have, so they have conventional birds and some NAE um, complexes. So they were really seeing what they described to us when I, you know, was first approached about the project was these really severe gizzard erosions. And so I was like, well, let's get out in the field and see what that looks like, right? And, um, but it was really interesting because it was like, on like I said, that caudal blind sac, and it was sloughing and um, edema in that um, gizzard coilin layer. Not exactly what the gizzard erosion that you kind of think of when you look in the textbooks and see, you know, an ulceration on that mucosal change from the proventriculus to the gizzard. And they, they were seeing this only in the birds raised without antibiotics? Correct, yes. Interesting. Mm -hmm. But they also um, were a vegetarian fed complex as well. So they're, just because where I was kind of focusing on um, my research, we didn't go into in depth with the nutrition part. We pretty much stayed with kind of what what is the presentation grossly, what is the presentation histologically, and are there any differences when we kind of break it down and see when our conventional birds look like compared to those NAE birds like under the microscope. Tell me more about your research. Okay. Uh, and how the trial was set up and then what you... Yeah, so um, actually it was nice because it wasn't a trial. They just brought me some of their birds. Um, we actually started at Day of Hatch. 
Um, the birds actually came from the, the same hatchery, no antibiotics used on that hatchery, and half of those birds would go to the um, conventional um, facility and then the other half would stay in the NAE complex. Every 14 days until 42 days, we collected 10 birds from each flock and um, did full necropsies on them, um, allometrics of the gizzard and the rest of the intestine, and then gross evaluations of those gizzards, and then histological evaluations of each gizzard as well. And yeah. what did you find? So it was actually really interesting. Um, it was really hard to find anyone who was especially histologically looking at gizzard erosions. There are quite a few references on gross evaluations of gizzards, um, but histologically, not very many. I kind of started from the lumen of the gizzard and kind of worked my way down into the musculature. So if you think of that organ, obviously it has the lumen is the middle and then the musculature is that thicker outer part. So when I was evaluating the histo, what we started to do was go from the lumen and work our way in. So one of the things that actually was statistically significant in, in the research we found was the level of surface bacteria on the NAE flock was um, statistically significantly higher than the conventional flock, which is pretty intuitive. Like you'd think, okay, yeah. we use something on a regular basis, that makes perfect sense. Um, the other thing that was kind of interesting, we also had more hemorrhaging in the coiling layer from the um, NAE birds as well. Um, I didn't, I thought it would be more obvious, like you just look at it and say, oh yes, that's, I mean, as a veterinarian, we get to see like, that's not normal, that's pathology, what can we do about it? Um, and so, grossly, I really wasn't able to appreciate a lot of hemorrhaging, but then once we got under the microscope, the coiling layer actually had quite a bit more hemorrhages without inflammation, which was, is also a kind of a finding I wasn't really expecting. Um, and then finally, in the glandular layer, the um, conventional birds actually had more inflammation than the NAE birds. Really? Which was also, I, I was kind of surprised by, I'm not gonna lie. Um, just because you'd think that when something is, you know, when anything, is, integrity is not um, up to complete physiological perfectness, um, you're gonna have an issue. But the coilin layers were more consistent in the conventional birds, but then that glandular layer was, um, had more inflammation as well. I also did some histomorphometrics. Using the microscope, um, what we do is you can actually measure um, the thickness of the coiling layer and the thickness of the glandular layer. So I did that for all, um, all 80 birds in the study. Um, and I just did where histologically I saw the most severe lesions. And then I did three evaluations or three measurements and then did the uh, means of each of those. Um, the coiling layers are thicker in the um, like I said, not statistically significant, but in general, um, the coiling layers were thicker in the NAE birds, um, and then that glandular layer was thicker in the conventional birds. And what so, does that tell you? Exactly. I don't know. That's why we do research, <laughs> That's right? That's an honest answer. Yeah. So, um, you know, I have um, some pretty decent mentors in the pathology world, and you know, I said, well, should I look at this? Is it important? And they're like, that's why we do research, right? Because we don't know. So this, I think, is, you know, many answers are definitely not available still from this research, but I think it also opens up to the possibility, again, with those changes in management, like, what do we have to look at? What is important? And, you know, this could potentially, you know, help be able to, you know, just diagnose different etiologies of even gizzard erosions itself. Um, but I really wanted to have more of a concise way to um, objectively evaluate those lesions. And um, so I think we did pretty well on that part. What would be the takeaway messages then for the industry? 
Well, I think, again, I think we all kind of have to kind of be on the same page. Like, when I walked into that farm, I really expected to see one thing. It was just like, I've never seen anything like this. Get a well-defined apples-to-apples kind of situation and be able to talk about the same um, thing. Um, also, giz- it wasn't gizzard erosions, truthfully. I mean, they looked grossly like they were gizzard erosions, but usually erosions have ulcerations where there's a break in that coilin layer, and that's not what it was like at all. It was, you know, um, more inflammation than anything else. So. Yeah, don't call them kids or rodents because I don't know what they're called yet, but something soon. <laughs> One final question. Yeah, sure. In the flocks where you had the gizzard erosions, yes, sir. and they were definitely gizzard erosions, mm-hmm. were there any other common denominators? I mean, did you see any other problems in those birds or secondary infections that might be somehow related to this problem? I think really the only thing that really stands out is just the gizzard tone itself that um, and the age when we're seeing the most severe lesions in the gizzard erosions actually throughout the industry is around for the broilers around the 28 day mark when they're going into a new feed, uh, uh, feeding system. Um, so that's kind of where you they're, they're most vulnerable because the feed change really does add a lot of stress but then like, like also that change in feed makes their gizzards a lot more flaccid so that food's sitting in there a lot longer potentially causing more issues. We've been talking to Jessica Hockaday. She is a production veterinarian in Huntsville, Alabama. Again, Jessica, thanks for coming by. Thank you so much for having me.